0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here. This week, your murder mystery world tour takes us to the State Library of New South Wales for the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. We were joined by Michelle Prack, author of The Rush, Benjamin Stevenson, author of Everyone on This Train is a Suspect, and Michael Trant, author of No Trace festival asked us to talk about closed circle mysteries and how the decades-old stylings of the subgenre help it create stories that are intense, timeless, and engaging. Past Herds, why don't you kick things off? Let's start by asking each
1: of you to define not your characters, your plot, your crime, all those terribly unimportant things, but the circle itself in your novel and why you have chosen it. Let's start with Michelle.
2: My closed circles, I guess you could say there are two. One of them is a car with four young people travelling from Adelaide to Darwin. Another circle, quite cosy, is an outback pub called The Pindery. Eventually those two collide, as Mm. you can imagine. Benjamin, tell us about your circle.
3: Yeah, my circle is a straight line. It's a train (laughs) from Darwin to Adelaide, the GAN, where a crime writing festival is taking place and they become trapped on it and there's sort of bushfires in the distance so the helicopters can't get to them so they really have no choice but to ride the train to Adelaide Mm. with a killer on board. Now,
0: the GAN is a real train that I believe has a trademark at the end of it. Do you you have to navigate much to get that through? Does it have a trademark? Down I at thought the end it, of it did. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fiction. I mean, you know, you don't you don't have
3: to sort of trademark when you talk about the Sydney Opera House or the Eiffel Tower. It's a good time to bring that up, given that they've just printed all the copies of it, and there's nothing <laughs> I can do about it. The GAN, so Journey Beyond is the company that runs the GAN, and they've read the book. So we sent it to them, and I think I thought when we sent it to them, it was to sort of check that we weren't going to get sued or anything. But they emailed back and they said, we love it. This is great. Could you come on board? And so I get to go on the train as well. Oh, that's fantastic. I think we've avoided that, but I wasn't aware of the copyright.
1: (laughs) Can I tell you, Benjamin, I have a bone to pick with you because ever since I read your book, the internet, mostly YouTube, has been sending me ads for the GAN nonstop for several weeks now. That's good. That's good Good to hear. <laughs> I need it's, you to well, tell them to stop.
3: It's better than my second book. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm talking over the top of your, your chance to talk about your closed circle. But I will say it's better that you're getting ads for the GAN because my second novel before the Everyone in My Family, is the Everyone series, yeah. was called Either Side of Midnight and it was about a suicide that might be a murder. And all I got were ads just said, don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Lifeline, beyond blue, think about it. And so it's nice to see that you're getting good ads instead of those.
1: Good ads. As if there was a good ad. Well, in any case, Michael, why don't you tell us about your, your circle?
4: My circle is quite a big one. It's on about a half million hectare cattle station. And I did not know it was a closed circle until my publisher told me. I've written a really good closed circle locked room mystery. I went, Hello? <laughs> cool, because the actual locked room part of it didn't come in until halfway through my manuscript. I thought, well, why wouldn't you just call the cops in? So I needed a reason why you wouldn't. So basically there's a big low-pressure system comes down, the cattle station floods, there's no in or out, which happens all the time when you're on those sort of properties. You see it on the news all the time. So, yeah, a bunch of tourists turn up, they all get locked there, dead body turns up is it or isn't a murder and yeah so the locked room is quite big but within that is another locked room of the homestead because what happens when it rains out in those places you generally don't leave because it's all red dirt country and once it gets wet you can't go anywhere you just get bogged and horribly stuck so you're generally locked around the homestead doing all the chores around the house that haven't been done forever and I know my father-in-law he, that happened to him back when I was still on a sheep station he said to me one day if I have to put up another bloody curtain I am going to go mad. So yeah, that's my locked circle. So closed circle murder mysteries often force characters to consider those closest
0: to them as the culprit. And that's sort of something that runs between all three of these books. Michelle, you have, you know, relationships distrusting of each other. You do as well with Ernest and Juliet. And then uh, Gabe also suspects Heidi in No Trace. So how do you play with the double-edged sort of trust among suspects in your writing? Benjamin, I'll start with you. The thing about,
3: The familiarity between characters and the beauty of Locked Room Mysteries is getting a set of people, putting them somewhere and seeing what they do to each other under tension. And maybe in that way, maybe you don't even know sort of who the victim's going to be at the start of my novel. I'm sort of playing them all as suspects for the characters in the book but also for the readers. And my first book was at a family reunion where they started picking each other off. So they had all these backstories between them and these levels of trust and issues that could be unpacked as they... and a serial killer among them. The second book is a bunch of people who have never met who get on the train at Darwin and then become very close very quickly by virtue of surviving the trip. So playing with levels of trust is very interesting because it's very different when they know each other and when they don't. But Ernest is on the train with his girlfriend, Juliet, and Ernest, for those who've read my books, he really loves murder mysteries and he loves the rules to murder mystery. And one of the things that I do in my books is... They're books in which someone who loves murder mysteries finds themselves inside a murder mystery. He's trying to apply all the rules. And one of the rules that he applies is that his girlfriend can't be a suspect. She's exempt from being a suspect. So he's investigating this murder in the novel and he's consciously saying to the reader, it can't be her. No, it can't be her. She's a returning character. Returning characters are never the killer in a golden age mystery. It can't be her. And he keeps ruling her out. But we as the reader are sort of drawn along into this well why does he keep ruling her out so it gives you an extra level of tension there playing with the rules
1: i believe the phrase is only an idiot would suspect juliet and i'm sure that isn't foreshadowing of the worst moment in the entire book emotionally
3: (laughs) well absolutely so he (laughs) says he says juliet can't be a suspect only an idiot would suspect juliet but then he's trying to have a romantic conversation with her i won't spoil it but he's trying to have a romantic conversation with her and She says, oh, I missed you last night. And he said, I missed you too last night. Where were you? And then (laughs) he's like, you know, so I'm playing with that kind of who do you bring in. But again, you know, it's a group of new people that have just met. And I think there are very interesting connections there and people who have connections that they don't know that they have. And you can discover that. So it's interesting whether you have everybody familiar or whether you introduce a brand new set.
0: Yeah, and then Michelle, in your book, one of the things that's interesting is that you sort of have both of those things that Benjamin's Mm. just been talking about there in one. You have the people at the Pindari meeting, like the two closed circles essentially meet each other in the middle.
2: Yeah, there's lots of trust circles, more circles. I like looking at trust in my work because there's a lot of tension there. There's a lot to explore. With the four young people in the car, we have a couple that share a house. They've been in a relationship for a number of years. And to share the cost of fuel, they go into a travel forum online and find two backpackers to travel with them. So there's already some trust there, you know, trust in the travel forum, trust in this is a routine that a lot of people go through. You travel together. This is a trustworthy event. And um, but of course, then as you've mentioned, you've got those four characters thrown in together in an almost inescapable um, situation in the car as well. I often think when we talk about Outback Journeys, we might describe it as a great escape, getting out of the everyday ordinary, let's get away from the office and get out amongst it. But in reality, for a lot of it, you are actually confined in a fast moving vehicle. You might be more stationary than you are during your everyday work. So I had a lot of fun in testing the unravelling trust or the characters themselves sounding each other out. But as you've mentioned, at the Pindery, that Outback pub, one of the things I loved exploring there from that female publican point of view was the trust you have to have in your own safety as a woman in an environment where emergency services or help might be far away. One of the things that the publican Andrea has to trust in quite often is and civility and manners and societal norms so for example if you're a customer at the pub you stay on that side of the bar I'm on this side of the bar if you're rowdy and I want to chuck you out you have to leave but throughout the rush those sort of scenarios get tested that sort of trust gets tested.
1: So Michael in your book Gabe he's a returning character from your previous book Wild Dogs and you play a lot with the idea that maybe Gabe trusts these people too much in a way. He's not even sure whether it's a murder mystery or not until like right at the end. But I feel like the person that he doesn't trust is himself. There's this element of paranoia after his traumatic experience. He's a very traumatized professional on the job. I guess I'm curious about how you kind of approach Gabe and his trustworthiness of his own testimony in that moment.
4: One of the things I wanted to explore in No Trace and Ben touched it on you touched it on with everyone is a suspect, is that you get these characters, they're always returning, whether it's Jack Reacher or all these other characters, over 20-odd books, and they go and kill a heap of blokes in a book and in the next book he has a cup of tea and carries on, which is fine if you're an SAS soldier or an investigative policeman, you've got the training and stuff to deal with that, but Gabe's just a normal bushy, he's just a dog trapper, he works out in the Murchison trapping dingoes and wild dogs on the fence and in Wild Dogs he uncovers a people smuggling operation and ends up, killing about 12 blokes to get himself out of trouble. Not by choice, he just sort of, that's what he had to do to survive. So for you and me, normal people, that's going to be a lot to unpack. In No Trace, we find him, it's two years afterwards, he's basically been through the whole police investigation and everything and he's starting to get nervous that he's probably upset quite a few very nasty people. So he's hiding out in a mate's cattle station, just keeping his head down. So when all these people turn up and things just start going wrong... And he's since learned that one of the guys is out of jail now because they couldn't get him on very much, mainly because there was no witnesses left, thanks to Gabe. He starts wondering, well, am I is everything that goes wrong in that book is completely explainable. Like the phone goes out, the internet goes out, that happens all the time on remote properties. Helicopter falls out of the sky, that happens all the time too, with these little mustering choppers. They're always falling out of the sky just due to the nature of the work that they do. So when these things start happening. First of all, he's like, oh, let just run a bad luck. But then the bad luck keeps happening and then when finally someone turns up dead, it's like, well, is it bad luck? Is someone out to get him? So all the characters that are there, it could be any one of them or it could be none of them. So that's a lot of Gabe's paranoia. And, I mean, I didn't even know he was going to do it until the end. I still hadn't decided. And one of the people I had pegged to be the bad guy ended up saving the day. So it was just as much a mystery. Buddy Frank.
1: (laughs) He's the best character. I love him so much. Fucking Frank.
4: Yeah, no, he's a good character, but I wasn't sure what was going to happen either. So it made it easier for me because the discussions I was having in my head about, well, could this happen, that's the discussion that the characters are having in the book. So once I decided who it was going to be, I could then go back and throw in all the little foreshadowings and whatever that made it look like I knew what I was doing when I was writing it (laughs) to start with. So, yeah, but the Wayne thing was I just don't want Gabe to be this character that kills a heap of people, goes through all this traumatic stuff and then is fine because that's just not right.
3: It's interesting hearing you talk and I agree with that about the the sort of PTSD that affects these characters. Ernest in the book says, well, Miss Marple doesn't have nightmares, you know, and just sort of reflecting on the fact they can just pick it up again. It's really interesting to me that your second novel unpacks Gabe's PTSD because I don't think this is a spoiler for the first novel but, I mean, I thought he was dead at the end of the first book so... That's interesting to me, not to like take the interview question, but I'm fascinated that you transformed a character who you'd all but I thought killed off into this kind of processing of what happened to him. novel as your second book.
4: Well, he did. The manuscript Penguin got for Wild Dogs or Where Wild Dogs Roam, which is what it was called when I first sent it, he died. For the moment I started writing that story, I was going to have this grumpy old outback bushy being paired up with someone not of his world or not of his culture, so he gets paired up with a young asylum seeker, Afghan man Amin, I wanted that clash of cultures, but I wanted Gabe to have this redemption arc where he dies at the end, saving everyone else. Like all these movies that I've watched, like Logan, all those movies where this grumpy old character who does not want to be there but still does the right thing. So he did; he died. And then that's what they signed up for. We signed the contract; he was still dead. We did the first round of edits and got to the last paragraph, and he was still dead. And the publisher said, "Does he have to die?" <laughs> and they signed up for two books with wild dogs. and I had, I had nothing like this. This was signed; it was signed up in September of twenty-one came out in February 22 and they wanted the manuscript for the next book in June of twenty-two. So I had nothing and I had four months to write this No Trace. So by keeping Gabe around, that made life a bit easier. Because yeah. I already so. had the backstory, I already had a, a thing, and then with No Trace I could sort of delve into Gabe a bit more because he was going to die in Wild Dog. So I didn't need to go into too much backstory with him and sort of all you had to know is just a grumpy old borderline alcoholic who didn't want to be where he was, but had a, a unique set of skills that he could use to get himself out of trouble.
0: So that okay. was where the uh, title of the manuscript came from, is that if it showed up empty, there'd be no trace of it. For yeah, the well, that, well,
4: it was originally called <laughs> Slow Burn because he was, he was dealing with the, the, the first paragraph of Wild Dogs is the slow burn it gets them, and he's talking about drought. And droughts are, they are a slow burn. fires and floods, they all you know, happen so quick, you deal with it, and then you stress. Whereas a drought... It's a continued building piling of each week upon week upon week, this slow burn of tension and pressure and it's going to rain. No, it's not going to rain. The rain passes, you're spending money. So it's a slow burn. So that's what I wanted No Trace to be and that's Gabe's paranoia building and building and building and building. So I called it Slow Burn and then they decided to call it No Trace because through both books there's a leave no sign, leave no trace, which is what you've got to do when you're trying to trap wild dogs. And I thought, well, that's perfect because when I write another book, I can call it No Sign and it will be looking for someone. So <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's the plan from now. Well, well, if I mean, we
3: all named our books after what our publishers were expecting when they got the draft, mine would all be called Sorry It's Late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I did want to latch on to that idea of the redemption story, which is something that's really common in closed circle fiction where everyone shows up, the circle gets closed around them and they have to deal with this external trauma that they've brought in. So for example, with you, Michelle, you have Andrea coming in with her trauma from her past in other jobs as a publican, and then Scott and Haley coming in with their relationship that they're dealing with, Livia coming in with this conflict about her ideals, and then used sort of the enigma in the story there. So I guess dealing with that redemption arc, how does that guide the boundaries of that closed circle for you, Michelle?
2: Okay, I guess I was just looking at it from each character's point of view, having their own story to bring to the novel. As Michael said, I didn't know I was writing a close um, circle book at all. I guess that focus came naturally after many, many years of reading thrillers and reading crime and just imbibing it and having that sort of thing come out naturally. I don't just like reading thrillers, I love watching them as well, so it feels like it's in the blood And um, that redemption arc is another one of those expectations, I suppose. It's not quite a trope, but it's something that we enjoy um, in characters. Sometimes I think as well, this is very hard to discuss without giving spoilers because the rush does have a, a twist at the end. Sometimes you can almost pick a character's journey, predict what might happen, whether they're in that good basket or the bad basket Mm -hmm. by that focus on their redemption, I suppose, and and their journey. Are they struggling? Are they not struggling? Are they having a great time (laughs) or um, a poorer time? Are they reflecting or not? So yeah, that's interesting, but not something I was really focused on. It just sort of came naturally. Mm
0: Because one thing I found really interesting reading through your book is the way that you sort of emblemized this idea of the closed circle mystery by having pressure build when people are inside Mm -hmm. and defuse when they're outside. So when the four of them are in the car, things are going wrong, they're getting into arguments, but they step outside and suddenly it's the beautiful landscape. (laughs) You know, Andrea has all of these troubles when all of the bikies come into the pub, but as soon as they're all gone, as soon as everyone's outside, she can step onto the porch. Things tend to cool off. So I guess, you know, that idea of space in the closed circle, was it important for you to deal with that physical pressure cooker idea of it as much as it was the sort of philosophical side of it, for lack of a better word?
2: Yeah, I suppose it was letting the pressure valve down for the reader as well, you know, just allowing some of that space to leave the um, confines of the car for a short time to, to get out of the pub and just have some sort of breathing space. And then there's contrast between so many anxious moments that there are throughout this book but you know i discussing this with you earlier it was remarkable to me that that inside versus outside is almost how I see the world myself like I am more happy and relaxed when I'm outside I'm going to be a heck of a lot more relaxed when I'm outside this room later on, for example. (laughs) But to me, I am the kind of person that can't sit inside all day. I do like to be out, you know, to be in touch with nature. So somehow that has drip fed into this book where, yeah, inside bad, outside good.
1: (laughs) I'm really interested in this this dichotomy between inside and outside in terms of the closed circle mystery – Characters in these sorts of stories tangle with the temptation that the danger comes from outside of the closed circle, regardless of the reader's knowledge otherwise, because we've read the back cover or reviews or we've read your previous work, you know, whatever it is. How do you know when the time is right to unveil you to your protagonist, the true face of their foe?
0: Well, because you... Go for it. Go
1: for it.
3: <laughs> Run out of ideas and it's time to finish <laughs> the book. Um, no, I think that for me, because... I structure my books like Golden Age Mysteries from the 1930s, so unveiling the true face of the foe is the end point in unveiling all of the goals and wants of everybody within the circle in this context on a train. So that's how I want to build my sort of red herrings is I want everybody to sort of have a goal and a want and a need. and the protagonist, the detective, does not understand those goals and wants and needs, which is what makes them look like killers. Now, those goals can be redemption. Those goals can be good. Those goals can be evil. They could be trying to hide something. They may not be trying to hide a murder, but they are trying to hide something. So the point in the book in which you unveil the foe is when you have unveiled all six of the goals and wants and needs and the only one left is the person whose goals and wants and need is a murder. So... That's kind of how I do it. I think that one of the things that I wanted to kind of try and do, which I don't see all that much, is that, a lot of the times maybe you can unveil that once on the big red herring and then go through and then it's time to do the main one. But I wanted to do it for everybody. I also think it's just its just pace. It's just when you need to – there's only so many dominoes that you can set up, right? And there's a point where you've got to knock over the Jenga tower and it's finding – that's the skill, right, In in solving a murder mystery on the page. It's finding the perfect moment to do that where you go – And here all it is. We're at maximum tension and growing the tension, like you say about contrast, if you continue to add tension on tension, tension will become boring. So I've been a stand-up comedian for 15 years, right? You go and see a stand-up comedy act and they do 10 minutes and it's absolutely brilliant, right? If that stand-up comedian performs for you for an hour and does that six times, you're not going to like it because the structure of their sets, even if it's their absolute best material. So they need to put in pathos, contrast, pauses, pace, tension in different spaces. And so it's when you've built the tension so much that it, putting more tension on would only decrease the tension that you cut the wire and reveal the foe.
0: One of the challenges in like the closed circle mystery sense is that we want to play fair with the reader, which is something that you, Benjamin, have, have kindly put Knox and Van Dyne at the start of both of your previous books, much, much in my warm heart. But that sort of leads you into the trap where the reader can get ahead of that pacing and structure. So how do you as an author make sure that you are both leaving clues, but also not just throwing out the readers who spot the twist coming? Well, absolutely. And I think
3: that's a really delicate balance. And I think that's why Golden Age mysteries are quite short. So, you know, in the bounds of modern publishing, a crime novel is sort of ninety to 110,000 words. But Agatha Christie's average word length is like 55 to 60. So, you know, there's already a little bit when you're sort of writing in this space, there's a little bit of you're going longer than, than she was. And so, you know, the predictability, you have to really watch that and manage it. I think the key is, again, it's revealing it at the right time where you feel like people may not have got ahead of you. Most people will sort of get it about five pages from the actual time you named them because you're eliminating suspects one by one and there's nothing left. But I also believe that Playfair mysteries are like Sudoku puzzles and our job as writers is to have it be allowable that you can solve the crime. Five to 10% of people should be able to figure out the end of the mystery to every mystery novel ever written. Otherwise, it's not a good enough mystery novel. You haven't given us enough. It's playing a Sudoku puzzle without a couple of the numbers, and then you're just stuck. And so, if it becomes guesswork, then I don't think it's a fun mystery. If you solve it, but I can satisfy you that, oh, I see what he did here. Oh, that's clever. I did know who done it, but I didn't know why. I didn't know why I done it, but I didn't know who, then I think we've done our
4: job as crime writers. I think when I do these sort of things and people come and say, "Oh, I've read no trace," well, the first question I ask is, "Did you pick it?" And ninety percent of people have said no. The only time someone's told me they did was at a book club thing. And they'd already they'd all read the book, which was great, which meant we could discuss the book and we could discuss all the red herrings and things without any spoilers, because everyone there knew that we we're going to be talking about the book. And the only person who said that she'd picked it quite early on, she said, "I picked it very early on." But to be fair, I read a lot of crime novels and a lot of murder mysteries and a lot of things so I sort of know what to look for yeah. so the fact that you introduced this character and said something about him said right well, that's one to watch and then I could sort of pick it out pretty quick yeah. from there so to me it was obvious as I was writing it like once I was working on I thought like, this is too obvious but then when my agent said I'd put it down to the last two people which is sort of what I was trying to do anyway I thought well okay cool that's that's obviously worked I've done something right here but as I was writing things it's like oh this is is that too obvious? It's too, is this too obvious? Because you've got it in your head and you're trying to make it, like you say, you've got to make it fair but not obvious. So it's it's really hard when you because to you it's obvious because you know what it's going to be. So
3: There's a difference between a gotcha moment and an ah moment and I think that's the real key for every crime writer. And if, if you go for a gotcha moment, I think maybe it's satisfying in the immediacy of, kind of, ah, yes, trick but it's not satisfying. For me, it's not satisfying in a novel and I think I'd be like, wow, that was a big twist and then you put it down and then an hour later you're like, that didn't make any sense and that's the difference. And if you go for the R ah moment, then some people are going to figure it out because you've played fair with them. You put it all on the table. I mean, you guys, I've done the radio show with you guys before and you guys are phenomenal at picking stuff. You know, I mean, you're all over I'm it. Insane. You're like, the influence is here, which means this <laughs> comes from here and then this follows the rule and I'm just like, shut up, guys.
2: <laughs> I've had a similar reader feedback experience in that most readers say they didn't pick the um, twist And then I've had a a similar experience with these two in that these are the only ones that that did pick the twist. So I think it, yeah, it does come down to maybe perhaps how much you read and and analyse readings. But if we talk about planning and, you know, when to reveal who done it, I am a planner in the planning and pantsing scale but a lot of things happen and things change. So the baddie, if you like, is revealed quite early and people can really almost settle back and just watch that baddie the mayhem unravel. And after I'd finished the book and I'd submitted it to some prizes and got some great feedback and, and, and so on, only after it was, I thought, finished, did I develop this twist where something additional and surprising happened. So I guess that's an observation about this planning and pantsing range that we have and how much you can, yeah, try to decide when you're going to reveal something and how that might change when you're actually working on the book and it can change quite I, late. Because I, didn't, well, pick, I didn't
4: pick yours at all, but the moment it happened, I'm like, oh, of course, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. yeah. yeah that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's, um,
3: that's messed up, but that, that makes <laughs> sense, yeah. I'll also say I strongly believe in my book. I, I don't think anybody could honestly say when they get to the end of the mystery that they could say, I figured out who the killer was, I figured out why they did it. And that is because I figured out every puzzle, anagram, numerical, you know, arithmetic problem, all of the puzzles that are on the page. So Just watch me. (laughs) Did you get them all? Because those kind of things are in the book for a reason to prop up those really kind of intellectualized close readers that – are going to try and figure it out and try and outpace you. But I don't think you can get to the end and be like, I knew the significance of every single one of these and this came through in every single one of these puzzles because there are puzzles in the book. There are codes and stuff. And so that should prop the reader up as well.
1: Can I say, I'm not going to say that I solved everything about your book, but I did enjoy the word puzzle that it appears very early on and I enjoyed figuring out... Let's say the the final act's name. Let's say I, I enjoyed I enjoyed oh, yes. figuring that part yeah. out. Although a lot of the secondary mysteries kind of I don't know they just they just fell out of my brain. I guess.
3: Well, that's the point. That's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. You got to put enough secondary mysteries in there that you know which mystery is in the current consciousness of your reader and which isn't.
0: But but, but think- do you? Oh. Oh no, because here's the thing I'm going to pose <laughs> is that that is that is one solution that works well in a closed circle mystery, especially one where you have a very genre savvy character like Ernest. But when we look at Michael and Michelle's books, we actually tend to deal more with what I'd call the second book in in mm-hmm. crime fiction, which is that when you spot the twist early, you jump into the second book where suddenly you're now reading with the knowledge of what you're looking at. You now are getting all of these cues that would have, been just subtle hints that you'd come back to another time but they're now saying something completely different to you do you feel I guess Michael I'll go to you do you feel like you have that reader in mind who did come to you and say that they picked it when you're dropping those clues in are you worried about that experience you were having of oh this is all getting a bit too obvious for me when you do have that knowledge as the author
4: I like it when people because quite a few people have read it twice and they said, when I read it the second time, knowing what was going to happen, we could see how you dropped in those little little hints so that if you do get the hints and you do pick it, you're sort of going to, as you keep reading, you'll probably just keep confirming that you are right. But at the same time, you've got to try and get them to go for that red herring too. So there's sort of, there's got to be both. There's got to be proper hints and then uh, maybe false hints that could be. The Thing so like between the two characters at the end, you sort of decide who's it going to be. It could have gone either way, and as I said, right up until the end, it could have been either of them. But I decided to go one way rather than the other, and um, yeah. So it is. It is nice when people say, "Oh, we could see we could see you leading us in one direction, but also the other direction too." We could we could have gone down both paths, but when it comes to the reveal, basically both paths end up coming to the same point. Um, and yeah, it's just, I mean, I'd, I got asked by an interviewer a little while ago, I did an event with another Perth author, he said, what made you write a locked room mystery for your second book? Because they're quite involved and hard and most people <laughs> don't really, you know, tackle them unless they've been around a while. And I said, well, that's the beauty of not knowing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was not supposed to do it. I didn't even know I'd written a thriller with wild dogs until my agent told me I was just writing a book where stuff happened a bit quicker and... Yeah, so it's really it's really and I loved I love Ben's got a line in his book about the adverb, you know, what's an adverb. I had a, I had a manuscript assessment come back from my first book saying I, I missed quite a few prepositions. Oh sweet, cool. What the hell is a preposition? Man? But I, I hated I hated English in high school. I just did not and so yeah, I don't know, I'd love to meet my old English teacher and say, Hey, look at me now, yeah. Ooh. Well, I guess one of the other interesting things for
0: you, Michelle, would have been that you added that twist after going through the main writing process, which also meant that for you as an author going back through your own book, you would have then had that same discovery process of going, oh, that's what this scene means now.
2: That's exactly what happened. I realised, yeah, what maybe subconsciously I had been seeding it because it wasn't too much of a a rewrite, for example, yeah, to, to add that twist. I think another element in The Rush is that there are four character points of view and each of the four characters is going through their own turmoil and drama. They're all connected. They each have their own red herrings. There's a game or cues and clues for each of them. And another thing, of course, that the reader expects is, or is looking forward to is all these four character stories um, coming together, that is, it going to mean it accumulates into, you know, one explosive event for all of them? Are they going to be cascading events and who's resolved and, and when? Um, so I had a lot of fun with those storylines leaning on each other too.
3: The second book theory is, is such a great insight into how a lot of people read crime fiction as well. You know, it does transform it when you're Perspective is on a specific angle and part of our job is the filtering of information and the anticipation of your attention and where it goes. For me, one of the big things is taking that second book thing quite literally so I'm really invested in the rereadability of a novel. You know, how do you make something rereadable when, you know, the whole thing is finding out the ending? But I think that really great crime novels, when you start them again, they sort of unveil this whole different story and I think you can only get that through really delicate nuance of information filtering that applies a new relevance the second time you read it. So I've really, really tried that in both of my books.
1: Yeah, I don't want to obviously derail things too much. We are the interviewers, but on on our show, Death of the Reader, Death of the Reader, maybe. Uh, On Death of the Reader, the way that we cover books is that one of us reads the whole book before we cover the book and the other person reads the book as we're covering it, which is good fun. And that means that we can kind of have the experience of reading the book for the first time and the second time at the same time. What's the time going on there? And I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. I, I guess, I don't know. I just thought that was fun. I'm curious because. It is
3: fun. And I love the conversation between <laughs> you on the show Thank you. as well, because one of you and I, I, I can't remember, but I listened to an episode where you guys were doing that and one of you was trying to pick the ending it was none of our books and one of you was so cocky and the one who'd read it was like oh good good thought
0: dead wrong mate Uh, (laughs) I was probably the cocky one
1: I don't know I mean you do have you do have an ego on you Um, (laughs) speaking of the social issues of our time I'm curious, Michelle, your book obviously focuses on a very small cast. So all of your characters kind of have a, a very particular political slant in the way they interact with each other and, and bring the tension up. And as we know, crime fiction is a, a fantastic genre to tackle these questions around social issues, but because of the narrow focus of a closed circle mystery, these issues can make the culprit kind of stick out like a sore thumb, like the Chinaman, according to Ronald Knox's controversial rules. How do you balance representing the themes of your novel while keeping your criminal camouflage?
2: I thought issues were important because a lot of the characters are young people and issues matter to them. So for example, Livia, the Brazilian backpacker, she is a climate change activist, it's part of her character, it's what makes her interesting that she has that kind of passion. So it wasn't difficult, if you like, to bring an issue of climate change into the book. But as you're probably getting to, it, it's a fine balance. You don't want to be didactic. You don't want to turn uh, readers off. Although the character of Livia herself, she is becoming so confident in her activism she and advocating so much, she can't help urging people to you should read my blog (laughs) and so on. So she might be crossing that line a little bit herself. But then there was a wider issue I wanted to explore in the rush. And that was about just the nature of living in isolated communities, because that does fascinate me. I've undertaken a lot of road trips myself. I didn't grow up in an isolated community. I grew up in a small town but So that's, a, that's something to explore, that whole whole notion of how you may have to approach your life differently and have different habits when you're living outside the CBD, where, as you say, helicopters are falling from the sky, <laughs> reception, uh, phone reception and so on um, is difficult, and when you put characters under the pump with a storm, it's even more difficult. So issues came quite naturally and added to this tension.
3: The authorial distinction is so important in writing crime novels because if you want to figure out how a crime novel ends, if you want to pick it, often all you have to do is figure out what the author is trying to say. Mm -hmm. So if you don't disguise the themes of your novel, even though it's not on the page, even though it's not the clues, but if your authorial point is too clear, then people will figure out your mystery too easily
0: yeah it wouldn't really have held weight if Hayley, for example, was the heiress to big oil
2: with livia
4: in the car with her you know surprise <laughs> i loved what I loved about the rural settings and you you'd highlighted it so well is when people not from that part of the world venture out there quite often they'll go out there with stars in their eyes, they get halfway there and go, Holy shit, where is everyone like I've seen it that many times we used to when I was when I was still married out on sheep station. We did tourism and they still do, my ex-wife's still out there doing tourism with her family. Gabion's only five hours from Perth, but it's off the beaten track sort of thing. Like it's a road all the way out there mostly. But there's nothing on this road. And so we went touring a little while ago. I stopped at Payne's Fine, which is purely just an old mine site and a roadhouse and a caravan park. And that's it. It's a stop. So we stopped there for a quick drink and meal and whatever. And this truck had pulled in and it was a driver. I don't think he'd been in the country that long and his phone had blown up because he'd plugged it into the 24-volt charger. So he was out paying his fine 300 kilometres from Perth with no phone, no reception. His fuel card was on his phone so he couldn't. And this poor fellow was panicking because he couldn't get in touch with the boss. And I was like, where are you going? He said, Mount Magnet, which was another 300 k's away. So it's not far. To, to me, it was not far. He said, you're fine, mate. You're a road all the way. Just keep driving. If you have trouble, pull over, put a hand out. Someone will stop for you. And he just couldn't get his head around that there was no cars on this road by his standards. And he was just freaking out. And I used to say that all the time, tourists would come to the station. They'd just take one look at this horizon and go, oh, my God, what happens when something goes wrong? It's so like, deal with it. Like, you know, just sort it out. It's...
1: I remember, Michael, you were telling me about, I don't know if this was in a book or if was a real-life thing. It sounded like a real-life thing. Probably both. Where, probably both. <laughs> that is how your books go, isn't it? Where somebody had broken down on the side of the road and, and somebody else zoomed past them, uh, you know, yeah. and didn't help them. And that's a that's a black mark, you know. If you don't help someone in need... Out in the middle of, of, of relative nowhere, you know that's that's a sin against the community, right? Yeah. I think that's really interesting, bringing back this this element of of trust. I'm curious, Michael, what you think about not just finding the people that you that you distrust in these stories and these closed circle mysteries, but the importance of finding people that you do trust and that you can kind of rely on.
4: Yeah, it's like um, I mean, no. Trace Gabe's got Cameron. He's the mate who he's a lifelong friend. He's he knows who's given him a job when no one else would sort of thing. So he knows he can trust Cameron, and the two of them are trying to work out what the hell's going on. So you got to have both. You do, and you got to you got these people that, like you say, you, you're not sure if you can trust or you definitely can't trust, and then the ones that you can trust. And I guess the trick is trying to maybe blur the lines a little bit with some of those characters and as as no trace moves along sort of each one reveals who they are and why they're there but it's only towards the end of the book where that happens so that's when Gabe's paranoia starts really kicking in and deciding that maybe something dodgy is going on and what's he going to do about it so yeah i mean it's all these like none of the, none of these things i sort of did on purpose i just sort of like like you said about you, we we read these books and we we imbibe them and they sort of come out in our own writing, maybe not so much. I mean, yours is very, very much a conscious play by the rules. These are the rules. This is what happens on this page, this page. and that. Yeah, but you're still figuring it out as you go along. Yeah, on. yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm sort of doing it subconsciously maybe and it was certainly, I mean, I didn't really have much plan of what the story was going to be about when I was writing. So it was, a, it was an interesting process to go through, yes.
0: I think the other th- interesting thing about trust is that it's used in a lot of senses to create fear, and one of the ways that fear most interestingly presents itself in your books is the Michelle. You have a book that is all about fear that very much shies away from violence. Whereas, Ben, you are terrible, <laughs> awful and atrocious about making your books as hilariously violent as possible. Degloving. gloving I've, De-gloving. I've, I've yeah. <laughs> See, I don't think of them as
1: that
3: I don't think of them as that violent, to be honest. I mean, these are these are a real effort in making sure that the murders aren't violent I mean they happen on the page but they're not particularly gory but they're like they
0: horror tropes
3: right yeah well they want to they, you, you want to make them interesting a murderer is only as good as their murder so when everyone in every one of my family has killed someone the murderer uses an ancient Persian torture technique mm. to kill people it's not particularly graphic on the page but it's an interesting mechanism and I think that's one of the keys of kind of golden age classic mystery fiction yeah as well so you know I think the events that happen are more bizarre than violent because what I'm going for is the kind of bizarre murder conundrum but of did, how did this impossible murder happen. But yeah, I'll take it. I'll, you, I'll kill anybody. I don't care. <laughs> if 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 they're how boring far is me, the I
1: know. How, how do we get if out of they're here? boring
3: me, they'll they'll die. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that's a good point. I mean, you know, and I put I put poor Ern through a lot. His poor hand (laughs) seems to get beat up in every book. But, yeah, that's a good point. I just wanted to revisit the trust thing I think is really interesting because the character that your main character trusts, the reader does not trust. Yes. (laughs) So it's kind of a delicate kind of thing. And what you really need is in terms of trust is you need someone who can be the reader's advocate. So somebody who can sort of say what the reader is thinking and feeling and that flows through the text.
0: And that's a character that they trust that maybe the narrator doesn't trust. It's a tricky thing. And Michelle, you just absolutely bullseye to this problem by just getting Matt to leave at the start of the story
2: (laughs) get the most trustworthy person out of the way (laughs) there's no one to rely on there And one of the things I think with having that four points of view as well those four characters are at different stages of this thrill ride and it's like you're on the audience of a horror movie and you know what's coming and you want to warn them because you've been at a different stage of the journey with another character so you're shouting at the page or shouting at the screen don't trust that person but yet they still are at that stage so yeah i had fun with that with the m4 um, alternating characters
1: so michael in your book gabe is kind of untrustworthy because he's paranoid Ern is untrustworthy uh, arguably because he's just not as competent as we'd like him to be but michelle you have these alternating points of view there's a sense that you can't really trust anybody i mean arguably Haley is maybe our protagonist, detective, maybe sort any, of. Any
0: of them could betray us at any moment.
1: Yeah, they could. They could rip off their, their face mask and tell us that they're the criminal at any moment. So I guess how do you, how are you kind of thinking about that, putting these different perspectives in? Do you think it's important that we be able to suspect our protagonist of, of crime?
2: I guess it's a little different again in The Rush. Although we have the characters are, are looking for who to trust. For the most part, readers of The Rush do trust the characters that they're following, that they see them walking through minefields. Of course, there are you know, secondary characters that have questionable trust. Towards the end of the book, there's such a frenetic level of danger and activity that they really have... Less choices when it comes to trust as well. And again, because it's so isolated, there's very few people to lean on. They're just latching on and and throwing trust to each other and and hoping for the best at the end.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking of uh, trusting protagonists, in your first novel, Benjamin, in the Everyone series, you very kindly gave away the fact that Ernest was going to perhaps kill someone in the title of the book. And that also means that you're then playing with, for the rest of this series, this idea that Ernest is not the perfect detective. He could betray the reader at any moment. And the fact that he is playing so much with the rules means that when he eventually does break them hard line, you know, we've done it softly at many points because that's part of the fun of rules in the first place. I mean, is that sort of Damocles hanging over your head that eventually at some point Ernest has to betray himself? No, not not really, but
3: that's a good that's a good thought. I mean, everyone in my family has killed someone is, is the idea behind that was to do what the title says on the tin, right? Each section is structured around a family member and you as the reader know that in that section, the family member that's profiled will commit a killing. And then as it goes through, what then happens is you think, well, we've had these people's chapters and we haven't had these people chapters. Maybe one of them is the overall serial killer, but maybe people kill more than once, you know, and who is Ernest going to kill? And those are kind of the central mysteries. But Ernest himself pledges to play fair as per the rules of the 1930s detective fiction, one of which is that the detective himself cannot be the killer. So Ernest... I'm open about he cannot be the killer. But I do want to play with your expectations, you know. Who is he going to kill? What is the moral choice that he's going to make? And how is that going to pay off? And then in the second book, he sort of says again, he's he's obsessed with this rule. He says, I can't be the killer. I'm ruling out my girlfriend as a killer. Also, this book is first person, so I survive. So <laughs> I And I really had fun playing that because you're sort of thinking about, well, he had to sit down and write it and he sort of says in first person. But then how do I add genuine tension into whether or not Ernest does even survive this book and how do I play with that, was really, really fun. So I take those rules and I commit to them so it's not hanging over my head that I'm going to inevitably break them but I want to push them as far as I can push them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to write, you know, Roger Ackroyd. I'm not going to do that twist So or Gone Girl or any of that. I'm not going to ever do that but I want to be playful with it and have fun as I'm
4: exploring that. I reckon your ears might have been burning as I was listening to that last trap. I was like, you son of a bitch. How did you, you bastard. (laughs) Something happens, you know, no
3: spoilers but um, I always say that the next one in the series is everyone who survives the last one. So I never want to be, you know, there were ten family members and everyone in my family has killed someone. There's far less in this one. Well, there's a new (laughs) cast of characters with some cameos and then, you know, so I want to keep it, I want to keep genuine suspense in the pages with what can happen with the bounds of the physical object of a book that we're all sort of of this expectation of first-person narrator must have sat down and wrote it. How do I play with that?
0: All right. Well, we're into the final ten minutes. Does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask our panel? Stick your hand up and we have a microphone that will make its way around to you. This is your moment. This is your moment to shine. There we go. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, yeah,
4: hi, Benjamin. Uh, just the golden... The rules of the golden age of fiction. Why do you? Well, what are they first? Do you want to quickly give us an overview? But why do you find them so useful in terms of of framing your own your own stories?
3: Yeah, I I think they're actually reasonably outdated. So usefulness is sort of sort of the point. Um. So when I sat down to write, everyone in my family has killed someone. I wanted to write sort of a traditional throwback mystery because the mysteries I was writing before this were quite dark and gritty, getting ads for Beyond Blue, etc. So I wanted to change it up, be a little light. And I was looking into kind of the era, and I discovered that Agatha Christie, G.K. Chesterton, everybody writing in the 30s, Conan Doyle was kind of before that, um, would meet up and have a detection club where they would have lunch and they would talk about how to write mysteries. And one of the members of this group, Ronald Knox, wrote down 10 rules for writing the perfect murder mystery. And I found the rules and I thought they were absolutely fascinating. And I thought that most modern psychological thrillers, not crime books, but the ones that fall in the psychological genre, were breaking them Um, successfully. They're great books, but I found that they were breaking them. So I sort of – and I found that I was breaking them, a lot of them myself. So I sort of set myself the challenge, right, if I take these 10 rules of golden age fiction – and there's heaps of these. People through the 30s, everybody wrote a set. S.S. Van Dyne wrote 20, you know, there's a bunch – yeah, yeah. Tw- 20 with appendices. 20 yeah. with
1: A through F or whatever. See, look yeah. at
0: these guys. Look at They know their stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think the key thing to point out is that Ronald Knox made his rules about how to play fair in detective fiction. Yes. And everyone sort of lost interest in playing fair because at some point playing fair became so restrictive it was boring. Exactly. So um, – and Ronald Knox
3: partly wrote these rules to sort of rub in Agatha Christie's face a little bit. She breaks most of them. So they're not – They're not like bona fide, this is how you write a crime novel, but they are a little challenge for myself when I found them. Can I write a crime novel like this and try to find them? So they weren't entirely a rod for my back, but I found it interesting to not be able to do things like the detective being the killer. Some of the rules are quite simple, you know, um, you can't introduce new science at the end of the book to help explain a murder, you can't have more than one secret passage, no identical twins unless you've telegraphed it first. These are all the kind of things that we feel as a reader. Um, and I thought, well, what does a book like this make me feel and can I follow the, the questions without it being a rod for my back?
0: Do we have another question? Sue up the front. While the microphone's coming to you, the other thing I do love about Van Dyne's Rules, which you quote at the front of the latest book, is that they were actually part of his uh, recovery from a cocaine addiction. He hated murder mystery fiction. And his (laughs) his doctor said, well, if you hate it so much, why don't you give it a go yourself and see if that'll help you get over this whole cocaine thing? And he wrote
1: the most insufferable detective because of it. But, you know. It seems to it work. It's getting republished I, I was oh, shocked good. to find
0: out Van Dyne is getting republished Can you guys read my next
3: book Before it goes to print And just give me all of these Little gold names.. <laughs> Absolutely name Let's go
1: Put us in the book too Sue
3: so, <laughs> I will Felix and uh, Felix and Ben yeah. Felix and Hertz I'm just thinking about Your last names And how to have like a A two person Killing team
1: <laughs> a, That'd be fantastic And an
3: anagram Flick A yeah.
1: word puzzle With our names in it You flick, spoil us Flick head Flick head That's sort of close in anagrams from your names. (laughs) Close enough.
2: Okay, I've got a challenge for you. There are other people who've come up with rules for crime fiction. The late, great Elmore Leonard never described the weather and the book should never be longer than 250 pages. Um, Come up with a set of rules for Australian crime fiction. Would you come up with a set of rules? What would your rules be? I guess number one rule is entertainment. Entertainment. Uh, you do want to feel anxious. You, you might not enjoy feeling anxious at the time, but that's what you sign up for with a crime or a, or a thriller. Um, so, yeah, rules are um, perhaps uncomfortable emotions. Um, but for me, where um, you draw a line and it doesn't drift into horror, for example, is that it, it's delicious as well. You you are enjoying it. You're scared, um, but you've signed up for it. That's, that's a big rule, I suppose.
3: My rule for writing Australian crime fiction is to not overestimate everyone else's knowledge of what you're writing about. I think the beauty of a lot of Outback crime novels is that we see a lot of things every day and then we put it on the page and international audiences go, holy, I think this is on radio. But, you know, they say, I didn't know it was like this. I didn't know the Outback was like this. It's There's this certain... Fear is one word but grandeur of the Australian settings anywhere, the desert, the coastline, that is people don't understand. It's why Swedish Noir took off. So underestimate under, underestimate the audience's knowledge heaps, you know, take them back, put things that you think so Australian that we all know about them on the page and when they're on the page, they absolutely sing. I get emails from America saying, I didn't know it snowed in Australia. You know, people don't know our country and because they don't know it, you can you can really kind of explore humanity in all these different places and what it can do to people and place so, so well. So that's, that's what I'd put as
0: the rule. The Sydney Opera House is right next to Uluru, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think, well, I took my kangaroo here and... Um...
2: <laughs> I i was actually going to say Shane Maloney, who who also had a bit of a stand-up thing, the great Shane Maloney, when he was in, published in America, they had to put a glossary at
4: the back. Yeah.
2: And, um, and so that might happen to you if, too. But if my Michael...
4: books ever make America, I'll, I'm sure there'll be stand-up arguments because I know authors had to go through and change, like tomato sauce becomes ketchup and things like that. And I'm pretty sure because my books have quite... As, Stereotypical Australian bushy character in it. There is no way Gabe's going to call it anything but dead horse, or you know, st- so like you know what I mean. Like that's so that'll be interesting if the books ever make it to America and place having that. I can understand if they're set in America that where you would call it a trunk or a ketchup or, or sidewalk or, or whatever, but if they wanted to translate wild dogs to American, there will be some words, I'm sure of it. Well, they're probably not. They're going to pay me enough money. For Although, it. Yeah, I, we'll call it what you want. Do, want.
3: <laughs> do want? It's a hard conversation because it's so weird changing words in narrative description but then not changing them in dialogue because Ernest wouldn't say that the GAN travels 1,800 miles but on the back cover it says it's an 1,800-mile GAN journey. But you do just sort of have to put it away and go, All right, there's lots of words that I didn't even know other people didn't have. You know, you just I've, assume
4: I've found the difference between WA and New South Wales because I'm a WA writer, I speak West Australian. <laughs> which apparently is a completely different language <laughs> to over here, because the amount of things my editor came back with, like um, I had a, where blue metal he took off in a hurry and blue metal sprayed. And she said, What's blue metal? I said, um, it's Blue metal, it's it's the stuff that road is made out of, the tar and the blue metal. Oh, road base. Okay, if that's what you want to call it, but... (laughs) We're calling it blue metal in this book because it WA he would say blue metal and it's just a narrative description. Yeah, To and some extent
0: there's the no there's no way you can save it. I remember I gave a copy of Solari Gentle's latest book, which is set in Boston to some friends who lived in Boston and they came back to me a couple of weeks later with a list of things that all of the Bostonites in that book had said that was wrong mm. after it had been edited by a Bostonite. Oh, yeah. So there's yeah. there's just no winning. Palmy, palmer, you know. I mean
3: Western Australia and New South Wales do speak to it. I haven't understood it words where
4: you've you said, said all man, night, so you know. <laughs> That's why there are two of us here. He's translated. You're saying about the miles, like, man, I come off farms and I also work with a boat builder, so between the farmers and the boat builders, feet and inches are still a thing because you, you don't buy an 18.3 metre boat, you buy a 60-foot boat and the farmers are the same. It's a two-inch pipe or it's a it's not it's not often 48-mil pipe, you buy two-inch pipe. So how much is left in the tank? Oh, about a foot. Like, it's, like I'm fluent in both. So when I've got these characters, especially um, Cameron and Gabe who are the older generation, they, still talk, they would still talk in a 20-foot co- windmill length. It's about it's a, And if a pilot, it's 100 feet up in the air. And they had to come back say, well, well, would they say 100 feet? It's more like 33 metres. And so, Well, no-one would say the plane's 33 metres in the air. It's 100 foot. Like that's, it's just that conversation about language and how it works and what's authentic and what's not and what makes something, sometimes something that is authentic would make no sense to 99% of the population. So you've got to have that balance. They also, um, Americans swear less than we
3: do. I don't have particularly sweary books, but the Americans are like, gee, these characters swear a lot. And I'm like, gee, they swear not at all for the Australian audience. <laughs> we, we must know very
0: different Americans. Yeah, <laughs> no, I,
4: uh, I'm very fortunate that the narrator for the audiobooks swears beautifully. Like he just, good. I said to Rick, where would you learn to swear like that? He said, ah, oh, you live in Sydney long enough
0: and do what I do. On, yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, unless there is one more quick fire question, we got Let's get the microphone up there. We have 1 minute. Let's go quick before they throw us out. I know
1: they'll kick us out of the circle. And then what will we do? This is a question for Ben. Um I read recently that your uh, Everyone in My Family book is being adapted for television by HBO. It seemed to me that Ernie's character, the, the book really relies on Ernie's voice in the first person, I think you said. Um, And presumably the next book is the same. I haven't read it yet. How is that going? And and also I thought that Ernie, after seeing you at the Sydney Writers Festival, I felt that Ernie was Benjamin Stevenson, the stand-up comedian. How is that all going to translate to an HBO television series? Yeah. Um, Thanks for saying the phrase
3: HBO so many times in that. (laughs) Collect your 20 bucks after the panel. Um, Yes, so the answer is twofold. One is I have absolutely no idea and once Hollywood buys the rights to something, they can do whatever the hell they want with it. Um, The team that we're making with are so great. That's why I chose to go with them. They're so collaborative and they're, um, you know, open to me being involved in the creation of the show. We're still quite early days. So the form that it will take is up in the air in terms of do we have voiceover? Do we have proper fourth wall breaking turn to the camera house of cards style monologues or do we eschew it altogether and ride the wave of the script and try and get that in in dramatically elsewhere? Um, but it is going to come down to Ernest. It's going to come down to who we get to play Ernest and they're going to have to be able to do comedy and pathos and be pithy and meaningful at the same time. So I'm very... I'm as interested as you are in how that pans out and I think there's so many amazing pathways that we could go with it and I'm really excited to see what they do. But it is a challenge, you know, it's such an intimate book in in Ernest's head um, and a lot of the, you know, the thing I've said to them is I don't really mind how you do it but it's got to be fun. I think that, you know, I don't view my books as comedies. I view them as murder mysteries, but I view them as fun. So I never want to lose that. So whoever plays Ernest has to sort of capture that energy and 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 bring that vibe. But, yeah, we're working away and um, I wish I had a better answer for you. I wish I knew. Um, but, you know, they people in film talk to you when you need to know something. <laughs> so I, I tend to get things at the end, which is great because I don't know what I'm doing and they're amazing and they made The Sopranos. I'm sure they'll do a good job. But I hear things at the end of the day. We're doing this. Great. Sounds good.
1: Alrighty. My, my, my hope, just to, one, more, one more thing, my hope is that uh, you have like, you show the green screen of the car trundling along and you have all the background sort of stuff and the production in the film. I would
0: really enjoy that.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, like actually kind of,
0: Go full metal with it. I would really enjoy that. I have I have a terrible nightmare about what we're actually (laughs) referencing there, but unfortunately we're out of time. Please join me in thanking our guests, Michelle Prack, Michael Trant, and Benjamin Stevenson for joining us today. Thank you all for coming today and thank you for joining us for Death of the Reader. Woo!